When I came to the end of 2015, I had to admit that I was really pretty confused when it came to the topic of prayer. Uh, I'd kind of filled my mind with what all different writers and all different people said about prayer, but I actually couldn't say with any confidence this is what the scripture actually teaches about prayer, what you should pray, how you should pray. On and on. So what I decided to do, and what I actually did, I decided to take the year 2016 and read through the entire Bible with a journal in hand and record every instance of prayer. Every time prayer is mentioned, uh, every prayer that's recorded, uh, every teaching on prayer. And it was a, a, just a fascinating, profitable study. And you see ordinary people coming into the presence of God and they would argue with God, they would complain before God, they would pour out their, their sins before God, and they would ask, uh, make requests of God. It was just fascinating. One thing I noticed is that people did all sorts of risky things, and they, they, they prayed in ways that we would caution people from praying because taking such traumatic risks with God. I also noticed that God does not answer all of our questions about prayer. There are many things about prayer that we do not understand. Uh, I could ask all sorts of unanswered and unanswerable questions about prayer. Uh, and it's my conviction that we should make peace with that because that makes total sense. Because after all, we are finite, flawed beings and we're having conversation. We're making requests of an infinite, perfectly holy being. And so it shouldn't be too surprising that we don't understand everything. It's also my conviction that the things that we are told, the things that are very plain, we should cling to those things tenaciously. And one of the things that, that's clear when you read through the Bible is that petitionary prayer, making requests of God, is conditional. There are certain conditions, we're told this over and over and over, certain conditions that have to be met if we expect God to answer our prayers, hear our prayers favorably. For example, uh, and, and by the way, these prayers are not unreasonable, they're not arbitrary, they're very reasonable and very sensible in light of who God is, what he wants to do in our lives, and what he's doing in the world. In other words, if we understand these conditions in light of the drama of Scripture, we'll say, okay, now I see why God says that. For example, 2 Chronicles 7.14, this is the classic text about revival. God says, and my people who are called by my name, if they do four things. Here's these conditions. If they humble themselves, uh, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then here's what I will do. I'll do these three things. I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And so it's, it's just very apparent. You find it throughout Scripture. It illustrates that uh, if we really want God to hear our prayers favorably, we need to pay very close attention to these conditional statements about prayer. And today we're going to do that in regard to what Jesus teaches about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And so today we're talking about prayer in the context of our series we've entitled Finding God. Uh, Matthew 7, Jesus said, those who ask, receive, those who seek, find, those who knock, have the door open to them. The reason we seek God 
is because he promises that we will find him. And so we're talking about three ways that we seek and find God. Last week, we talked about finding God through fasting. Next week, we're going to talk about finding God by seeking him through the word. Today, we're going to talk about seeking and finding God through prayer. In Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, pray, if you want, to, if you want God to hear your prayers favorably, pray secretly, pray secretly to your Father who sees and rewards. Jesus tells us how we should and shouldn't pray. In verse 5, 5 and 6, he instructs us how to avoid hypocritical praying. He says this, when you pray, as my disciples, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. As with giving to the poor, as with fasting, Jesus doesn't say if you pray, but he says when you pray. If God really is your heavenly father, if God really has things that that you need that only he can give, it's, it's unthinkable that we wouldn't talk to him. It's unthinkable we wouldn't pray and pour out our requests before him. Jesus tells us, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Don't be like those who give the outward appearance of being pious, of being close to God, but inwardly their hearts are far from him. How did their hypocrisy manifest itself? He says, well, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Jesus wasn't condemning uh, uh, public prayer. He wasn't condemning going into a religious house of worship and praying with other people. What he's warning against, what he's prohibiting, is praying publicly so that you may be seen by other people. He says, if you want other people to notice, if you want them to be impressed, if that's the reward you're going for, you can get it but don't expect any reward from your Father in heaven. By contrast, notice what he teaches in verse 6. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so he's painting the picture of someone who does exactly the opposite of the hypocrites. You pray so that nobody will see you. As opposed to everybody seeing you, nobody will see you. So he says, go into your inner room. So go into the interior part of your house. Uh, don't, don't sit there and pray by the big picture windows so that when people walk in by, they'll say, look, Alan's in there praying. I'm impressed. No, you go to an inner room. And even then, he says, close your door. So you don't even want the other people in your household to notice. And if they do, it's fine, but he's making this this point. He says, you actually close the door and there you pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he says, he will reward you. So if you want his notice, you want his approval, his reward, meet with him in secret, just the two of you. That's what Jesus is teaching. Just the two of you. Now, as we mentioned last week, Jesus doesn't specify the reward that the Father will give those who seek him through prayer. Seems to me the main thing we need to keep in mind is when we think about praying and rewards, we need to view this this in light of everything else that Jesus teaches. We need to see it in the context of what else Jesus teaches. 
And uh, for example, John 15, 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and if my words abide in you, so there's the condition. If that's true, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so if we want to pray well, if we want to pray in such a way that God hears favorably and rewards, we need to have his words abiding within us. Uh, that will shape our desires, it will shape our requests, and it will shape the things that we expect from God, the type of rewards that we want from God. For example, let's say that someone is giving you a hard time because you're a follower of Christ. It's because of your convictions. It's not because you're being obnoxious, okay? It's not because you're just being offensive. It's because you have deep convictions about Jesus and about your, the life you should be living. Maybe people make fun of you or maybe they kind of exclude you from certain gatherings or they ridicule you or, or all the different things. So if that's happening to you, uh, how should you pray? What requests should you bring to God? And what reward, what should you expect God to do in return? Well, Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, 11 and 12 could give you some insight to those questions. There Jesus says, blessed are you. Now, this is what rattles around in your brain when you bring these requests to God secretly. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so among other things, you learn that, that in God's view, persecution, people ridiculing you, people ostracizing you, that is not outside the will of God. So when you go to God and pray, you don't, you don't go with this presumption like, God, this is not your will. Get me out of this situation. We are told to avoid persecution in Matthew 10, but when it finds us, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. He says, you're actually in great company. That happened to the prophets. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. And he says, you also learn here, again, if Jesus' words are abiding in you, you learn your reward in heaven is great. And if that is significant to you, if you are looking forward to, if you value rewards in heaven, then that will inform your praying. It will reform your, inform your expectations. And so that knowledge will inform what we pray and it will form what we expect in terms of rewards. And so my point is, is that our view uh, is to view our, our praying and our rewards in light of the larger context of, of Jesus' teachings. Uh, seeking first and foremost his kingdom and his righteousness it will shape our praying and our expectations. And so we'll discuss this further next week. And so that's an important uh, clarification. But the main thing Jesus is teaching is very clear. And this is what I don't want us to miss. Jesus is saying that uh, we should enter into secret times of prayer with our heavenly Father. Jesus is saying to you, when you pray, enter into your Father's presence in secret. And there, pour out your petitions before him. Now, that's, that's very simple, right? I doubt anybody is sitting out there scratch, scratching your head like, I have no idea what he's talking about. No, he, that, that's very simple. But the question is, what type of a person actually does that? What type of person goes into the inner room 
closes the door, and prays to the Father in secret? Well, the answer is someone who actually believes that it's worth it to do that. The person who actually believes that those who ask receive, that those who seek find, those who knock have the door open to them. Generally speaking, and there, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, the reason why we don't pray more and more effectively is not because we don't have time. We tend to make time, we, we tend to do, we tend to find time for the things that are most important to us, the things that are really worth it to us. Uh, generally speaking, the reason why we don't go into our inner room and cultivate this, this, this rich, deep, conversational prayer life with God is because we're not convinced that it's worth it. Sometimes we're not convinced it really makes any difference. And so what's the remedy if, if you really don't believe that it's worth it, if it's not your habit, you know this, but you don't do it? Well, what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is very simple. It's you need ears to hear, and if you don't have ears to hear, you ask God, God, help me get this, help me believe this, help me understand. If you have ears to hear, you receive this, and you believe it, and by faith, you go into your inner room, you close the door, and you say, God, here I am. I believe that you see, I believe that you reward when I pray in secret. You're probably aware of, of how essential human touch and affection is for infants. Some of you understand this perfectly. One of the most amazing things to do is to watch a mom or a dad holding a, a newborn infant. And they just for hours and hours, day after day, week after week, month after month, you hold that baby and you make eye contact. You never tire of looking into one another's eyes, right? And you speak soothing words and you comfort that child. You give that child undivided attention. I mean, it's just love. I mean, it's, it is love flowing into that child. And something very intangible but undeniable happens in the life of that child, okay? When that is missing, when a child doesn't have human touch and affection as an infant, I mean, th th that child has profoundly suffers both short-term and in the long-term. And so it is absolutely essential if that child is going to thrive. Something significant, something analogous is true spiritually uh, in, in terms of this type of prayer, this secret prayer that Jesus urges, urges us to practice. You know, Jesus encourages us to become like little children, to be that dependent, that innocent, that trusting. And so if you and I never get alone with God, if we never have these secret times with God, if, if you never make eye contact, I mean, really look into God's eyes. Scripture talks about seeking his face. If that never happens, if you never have this, this experience where you know God is seeing you, if you never let God hold you close and whisper into your ear, uh, I will never abandon you, nor will I ever forsake you. If you never let God tell you these truths of Scripture, like, uh, I am the good shepherd, you actually have no want. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil, for I am with you. 
If you never allow God to say that to you, you will never thrive spiritually. It's something like a, a, a spiritual failure to thrive syndrome. I mean, you will never become the person that God wants you to be. And, and when that happens over time, people go in a lot of different directions. Some people get hardened and bitter and cynical. Uh, other people, they become self-righteous and proud and judgmental. Other people, you know, well, you keep doing some Christian things, but practically you become an atheist. Practically, you live as if God doesn't really exist. And so that's the negative. But when you do experience God in these private, secret times, something intangible but undeniable happens when you have this unhurried, secret time alone with God in prayer. If you find those persons, and I know you know people like this, but but it's something in their lives you, you can just absolutely tell they have this this quiet humble confidence as they walk through life uh, they have this this type of peace that makes no sense it, it, it's beyond comprehension it transcends their circumstances and you notice the family resemblance you're like wow that person is like Jesus you know like their older brother like God the father and so this, this 21 days of prayer and fasting, it's, we're not doing this to impress anybody. We're not doing it to prove anything. We're doing it because we want to establish these habits of seeking and finding God, of spending time with God that will actually transform us and that will set the pace for the rest of our, our year. And as Brian mentioned, we've heard from quite a few people. This has been a very significant experience, people telling us, yeah, I'm seeking God in ways I haven't in a long time, or ever sought after God. And so that's, that's just perfect. Pray secretly to your Father who sees and rewards. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus also says, if you want God to hear you favorably, pray simply. Pray simply to your Father who knows your needs. So here Jesus flags another issue that can influence whether or not God hears and rewards when we pray. He says this, and when you are praying, verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, some translations say pagans, as the pagans do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And so here Jesus has in mind a a type of religion where, where people say that, well, it's all about saying exactly the right thing the right number of times. It's like a uh, a mantra or an incantation, or it's, it's almost magic. If I just say the right things the right number of times, then the gods will hear me and I'll have what I've asked. And so the emphasis is upon the person praying, doing everything right. And to his disciples, Jesus says, verse 8, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Don't think that repeating words meaninglessly will work with your heavenly father. Why? Because your father, who is also who, the, the one who is, is sovereign over the universe, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Instead of focusing on your prayers, focus on God. He's a good father who happens to be omniscient. He is intimately acquainted with every need you have before you ask And as we learn in Matthew 7, uh, he is a a father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. 
Paul Miller, in, in his book, A Praying Life, he says that one reason that people struggle in learning how to pray is because they focus on praying instead of focusing on God. He says it's like trying to learn how to drive by focusing on the windshield, looking at the windshield as opposed to looking through the windshield. He says it's very confusing, you get very disoriented, uh, you, you, uh, it, it messes you up in all sorts of ways. It makes you unsure of where to go. And so Jesus tells us that when we pray, instead of focusing on ourselves, our words, saying exactly the right thing, focus on God himself. If we remember that he knows our every need, he's a good heavenly father who tells us, ask and I will give, seek and you will find. If we remember that he's a, a God who knows our need before we, we even ask, then we come to him and we pray simply and honestly for what we need. Now, how does that sound to you? You don't need to be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask. Now, our Western logic, we tend to say, well, if he knows what we need, I shouldn't have to ask. He's God. He should just meet our needs. Uh, in Jesus' logic, he's like, no, that's why you can ask, because he already knows your needs and he cares about your needs. Uh, and this is how healthy, mature relationships work. You have a person with needs and there's another person who can meet those needs. This person should ask this person, will you meet the need? And then this person says yes or no. They say, yes, actually, I'd like to meet that need. Then this person says thank you, okay? That's the way healthy, mature relationships go. And, and most of us understand this intuitively. Um, if you have children, if you have older children, uh, you understand how this works. Let's say, for example, that one of your, you have a child who's a young adult, and uh, that child uh, takes a job halfway across the country. You, out of your generosity and out of the goodness of your heart, you decide okay, I'm going to help you move there. And so you rent a truck, you take time off work or whatever, you drive across, across the country, you load them up, you move them across the country, you help them unload, and, uh, and it's, you've done them a huge favor. Two years later, this child takes another job, and uh, they have the same need. And so you know about this need, and they know that you know about this need. You want them to ask you. You want them to say, hey, Dad, Hey, Mom, uh, would you be willing to do what you did two years ago? Would you be willing to take three, four, five days? And I'd like you to do this at your own expense. I would like for you to drive out here with a truck, and I would like you to help me load up, and I would like you to drive me to the new town, and I want you to help me unload. That would actually help me out a lot, and that would mean a lot to me. That's what you want to happen. Now, you could just see the need and meet it, but that would short-circuit some relational things that, that really need to happen. You want them to ask so that you have the joy of saying, yes, actually, you're my son. I would love to do that for you. And then what do you want? You want the satisfaction of them saying, thank you. And you want to be able to say, you're welcome. And so spiritually, that's what Jesus is talking about. God knows our needs before we ask, but he wants to be asked. He doesn't want us to presume on his goodness, his generosity. He wants us to come into his presence and say, Father, 
you know what you've done for me all these years? You know all the ways you've met my needs. Would you meet this need as well? Would you be willing to do that? That's what I want. That would mean a lot to me. And then that gives God the satisfaction of saying, you know, I didn't spare my one and only son for you. And so, of course, I will gladly, freely give you everything you need. And so we pray, God answers, and that gives us the opportunity, we're told dozens and dozens of times, give thanks. That gives us the opportunity to say to God, thank you. You've proven your faithfulness to me once again. And so that's a maturing, that's how our faith can mature and grow and deepen. That's how our relationship with God can mature. And so Jesus says, pray simply to your Father who knows your needs. And if there's any doubt about the types of things Jesus had in mind, he continues in verses 9 through 15 with instruction on praying simply and directly to our Father who knows our needs. And so in verses 9 through 15, he says, pray then in this way. And what's recorded in the following verses is often called the Lord's Prayer, maybe more accurately, it's called the Disciples' Prayer. And interestingly, whereas earlier Jesus said, go into your inner room and close the door, this seems to be a corporate prayer. This seems to be something you're supposed to pray with other people. And so he says, our Father, it's all first person plural, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. And so um, uh, Jesus envisioned both private secret prayer and corporate times of prayer. The two fuel one another. And we won't examine this prayer line by line. Uh, I'll read it and make a few comments. But on Wednesday night when we gather down in the venue in the north end of the, the room for our, our churchwide prayer times, this is going to form the grid, kind of the, the structure for our praying. These six petitions here, the, these are, these are, this will form what we, we pray. It will shape how we come to God as a body of believers. And uh, as you're aware, the church has a long, rich tradition of praying the Lord's Prayer out loud in unison, and that's certainly appropriate. But Jesus seems to be, be teaching us not uh, so much what we should pray, like repeat these words, but how we should pray. Uh, the NIV says, this then is how you should pray. Verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's been pointed out these first three petitions uh, are focused on God's glory, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. The last three are focused on our good. And so it flows from God's glory to our good. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. He taught them to pray about today's needs. Sometimes that's the main thing we need to pray about. Give us this day our daily bread. Then we pray about forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then we pray about temptation and evil. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he circles back to forgiveness. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. 
And so when we gather on, on Wednesday night, we'll pray using these categories. We'll pray simply and directly to our Father who knows our need before we ask. Uh, we'll also have a time of, of worship through song. We'll also celebrate the Lord's table. There will be a time where you can go and, and remember the body and blood of Christ. But we wanted to have a church-wide prayer gathering at the end of the, toward the end of this 21 days, just as a way uh, to, to be something of a, a wrap-up and a way for us to just corporately express to God our deepest desires. And so when we think about this passage as a whole, uh, our desires is that our, our times of secret individual prayer with God would become so rich, so meaningful, so, foundation for, so foundational for our lives that we would also have this longing, this desire to meet together with, with one another and pour out the same types of petitions together before God. And so our private secret times of prayer fuel our corporate times of prayer and we come together and we pray with, with one accord, our Father, our Father, who's in heaven, uh, your will be done, your kingdom come. And so God, we ask that you would give us the will, give us the desire, give us the time, give us the energy to seek you in the ways we've been talking about. God, prayer really is a gift, and uh, we pray that you would give us this, this, these times one-on-one -on -one with you, these secret times. We pray they'd be nourishing. We pray they'd be satisfying. I pray for those here today who maybe have experienced disappointment in the past in relation to prayer, who may not want to risk it at all. Give them faith. God, for those that have never seen the need, God, would you open their eyes, give them ears to hear. We pray, God, that we would have rich, significant times with you. And God, when we come together on Wednesday night, we pray that it would be a time that's uh, incredibly satisfying to us, but more importantly to you. We pray you would delight in our time as we gather. God, you're, you're at work in this world, and we, don't, we want to be a part of that. And so, God, move us as you will. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.